Now, if you're not familiar with the letter of Paul uh, to Timothy, to, to Paul in 2 Timothy, um, this letter is presumably the, the last letter that, that Paul ever wrote. And so the passage that we're reading from and reflecting on comes from the last chapter of the last letter that Paul ever wrote. The great evangelist, the, the, the great preacher, church planter, the great theologian Paul is about to die. And you can actually see that just from the language that he uses. A little bit further on in verse 6, he says this, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so these are Paul's last words to Timothy, and I think any time that you have that, then there's significance to those. When you're getting down to last words, you're dealing with things that are really, really critical. And you want to talk about those things that, that matter so much. And you get a sense of that just by the language that, that Paul uses in the way that he opens up this chapter. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And he's saying, Paul and, or Timothy, in the presence of the one who will judge the living and the dead, I give you this charge. Right, here's, here's the command, the thing that I want you to understand. And, and the truth is that what Paul is saying to Timothy, uh, he is also saying to the church tonight. And as we go through this passage, I want to highlight kind of just, just three things fairly quickly. And it's basically this, that Paul is showing what we need to do, how we need to do it, and why we need to do it. Okay, I want to, I want to walk through this a moment. So, we begin with, with what, what do we need to do? Well, that answer is fairly obvious. It's the opening words of verse 2. Preach the word. That's the charge to the church. That's what the church is called to do. Right? Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Timothy, that's what I want you to do. Okay, follow-up question is, how do we do that? Well, the next words of verse 2. With great patience, and careful instruction. You could translate that literally as with great patience and careful teaching. And that word that's used for instruction, that word that's used there for teaching, is the Greek word that is used for doctrine. And I think that's exactly what doctrine is. It is the careful instruction, it is the careful teaching of the Word of God. Okay, so why does that matter so much? Well, here's what Paul says. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. It's the same word there. It's the same word for teaching. They will not put up with sound teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I think we should notice that. Paul is saying people's desires will drive their doctrine. Right? To suit their own desires, they're going to gather people around them who will teach them what they want to hear. And because of that, they will turn their ears away from the truth and they will turn aside to myth. Here's, here's just what I want to draw out of this passage tonight that I think is important. The reason why doctrine matters so much is because the Christian life 
is not shaped by desire. And the Christian life is not shaped ultimately by what other people do or think. The Christian life is shaped by the truth of the Word of God. And so, so we need to get rid of this notion that that doctrine is somehow detached from life. Right? Doctrine is what gives shape and, and structure and, and guidance and leading and direction to the Christian life. I want to share this quote by a guy named Adoniram Gordon. Not to be confused with Adoniram Judson, the great missionary, but he was named after him, just for a fun fact. Okay? Adoniram Gordon. But I like this quote. He says, Doctrine is the framework of life, the skeleton of truth to be clothed and rounded out by the living grace of a holy life. And our doctrine is rounded out by the living grace of a holy life. And I, I like the word uh, framework. I think framework is a healthy word because doctrine is, is not the framework uh, just of life, but doctrine is really kind of the, the, the study of the framework of the Bible. And theologians will describe this as, um, this is your big word for tonight, they'll describe this as systematic theology. Um, it's, it's basically the, the study of the framework of the Bible. And if that's just a massive word for you that you can't wrap your mind around, I would say it this way. Systematic theology is really the study of the blueprint of the Bible. Right? When, when a builder builds a house, they start with a blueprint. And on that blueprint, they've got all the details that they need to know. There's all these instructions and... Well, not instructions. That's wrong. I don't know much about blueprints. But there are numbers and details on there. Right? And so you've got all your measurements on there. And it tells you exactly which room goes where. And it tells you kind of where the stairwell is going to go and how this room is going to connect to that room. Right? And when a builder builds the house, you're not allowed to kind of guesstimate when it comes to the blueprint. Right? You don't just get to go, like, oh, well, we'll kind of round up in that area, just shave a little off here, because it's going to have consequences in other areas. Right? A, a, a builder studies and becomes really, really familiar with the blueprint, and what you discover is that when they build the house, they, they, they have some pride in the house because they understand how well built it is. Right, they understand how solidly built the house is. And I think that's a good way for us as Christians to kind of think of what we're doing tonight. Right, as Christians, we need to be careful that we're not, that we're not satisfied with just kind of some, some vague, big picture of the Bible. We, we want to understand the framework. We want to understand how it fits together. Right, so that when we share the, the, the truth of the Word of God with others, that, that, that we have confidence, conviction about just how solid the Word of God is. Now you'll notice those boxes up there. I, I, I want to put it this way. When theologians divide up systematic theology, they, they, they typically divide it into what I would call six rooms. Okay, so we're just using the analogy. We're going to say there's six rooms in the theological house. And these are the six major doctrines. So it's, it's the doctrine of God, it is uh, the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, and the doctrine of the end times. Those are, those are kind of the six major rooms in the theological house. And what we want to do is basically one by one enter into these rooms. Spend a number of weeks so that we really familiarize ourselves with this room, understand what it is, what it looks like, how it connects to the other rooms. 
and then we'll move on to the next room. Now, when I was in school, we, we learned systematic theology, and we used it um, uh, with, with really large uh, textbooks. I, I brought along some show-and-tell just for fun because I've been hiding them up here. But this is Louis Burkhoff. Um, bit of an oldie, but a goodie. A lot, of, a lot of good stuff. Some of the guys who are going to school right now, they're familiar with this. So this is a book that we used, and what you'll discover is that it's also divided uh, in a similar way according to the major doctrines. Uh, when I was about halfway through school, I added this one, Michael Horton, The Christian Faith, A Systematic Theology for Pilgrims on the Way. Also good. Uh, and then, just because you can never have enough, uh, we added one more, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Now, uh, some of you are like looking at the size of these books, and you're like, oh boy, what have we gotten into? Um, you'll be relieved to know that what we're going to use for our study uh, is a document that is significantly smaller. And we're going to spend our time working through the Belgian Confession, uh, written about 500 years ago, 1561. But one of the things that I want to point out is that if you break up the Belgian Confession, it has 37 articles, if you break it apart, you'll discover that it's divided the exact same way. And I find that interesting, that over 500 years, the way that we wrestle with and try to understand the truths of the Bible has really not changed that much. Right? Theologians, they still find it helpful to work with these same uh, major categories. Now, since we're going to spend some time in uh, the Belgian Confession, I'm just going to give you a super quick... I just need to clear up all my systematic theologies here. Um, I'm going to give you a super quick background uh, to the document tonight and just, just paint a, a bit of a picture. If you're familiar with church history, uh, you might know that around 1517, uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And that, that event kind of, it kind of kick-started something called the Protestant Reformation. And, and the Protestant Reformation was really just this, um, this movement that involved individuals who were, who were protesting, that's where you get Protestant from, they were protesting the doctrine, the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, and they were calling for a reform, so a return to the truth of the Word of God. I can't get into the whole history and the politics and the whole scene going on behind it, but I do think it's important to understand that these individuals involved in this movement uh, faced a lot of hostility, a lot of violence, a lot of oppression. Because the, the general accusation was that they were subverting, that they were undermining the authority of the Catholic Church, and thereby they were essentially undermining the authority of the governing forces. Now, the reason I, I say that is because Guido de Bre, who's kind of the, the principal author, at least, of the Belgic Confession, was born in 1522. I got a little picture of him up there. I think it's interesting um, that all the reformers seem to have had their, their portraits painted by the same individual, because they all look a lot alike. Anyway, side note, I'm back on track. So... 1522, he's born. And so what happens is he's born exactly as kind of the, the, the Reformation is getting off the ground. As far It's kind of taking flight. Now, from what we know about him, for the first 25 years of his life, uh, he was raised in a very devout um, Catholic home. And then in, in 1547, so about 25 years old, 
he rejects the doctrine, the teaching of the Catholic Church, and he embraces the doctrine of the Reformation, which was, was really, if you're familiar with it, it was really built on the idea of um, salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, a submission to the Word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. And so he, he, he embraces uh, this doctrine. Now, I, I, I want to be clear that this is not just an academic shift in his theology. And that's why I want to spend a little bit of time on, the, on this history, because I think it's important for us to understand the significance of what this meant. A couple months after Debrec came to embrace uh, the, the, the doctrine of the Reformation, there were two uh, Reformed pastors with their wives who came to the town of Mons, uh, where he was living. And they came and, and met with a number of those who had embraced uh, the, the Reformed doctrine and we don't know for sure, but I think we can at least assume that someone like Debre, who lived in the town, would have been among these individuals. So they came, and these two pastors and their wives, they spent time with this group, and they left, and shortly after they left, these two pastors and their wives were arrested by the authorities. The two pastors were burned at the stake, and one of their wives was buried alive. And I share that because I want us to understand that what we believe, our convictions, they, they shape how we live. And I think we sometimes forget that because we have such a comfortable climate of Christianity that we grew up in. And yet these individuals were willing to die rather than compromise what they felt was the truth of the Word of God. I'm not going to spend a lot more time just on the history of Guido de Bret. I just want to say that he, he did go on to become somebody who was uh, a very influential pastor and a teacher and a theologian. He spent most of his life on the run because of his convictions. But in 1561, he wrote this document, which was originally called the True Christian Confession, uh, and it's now known as the Belgian Confession. He wrote it uh, to a guy named King Philip II, the guy who was really leading the kind of the persecution and the hostility. And he wrote it because he wanted to explain that the Christians were not crazy. Right? He, he kind of wrote this because he wanted them to understand that, that, that the Christians, uh, the, the, these reformers, were simply wanting to live according to the truth of God's word. They wanted to live in submission to Christ. They weren't trying to undermine the authority of the government. They, they simply wanted to be faithful disciples of Christ. Here's just a quote from the letter that he wrote to King Philip II. It says, Through this confession, as we hope, you will acknowledge that we are unjustly vilified as schismatics or as disturbers of the unity of society, as disobedient and as heretics, since we are committed to and confess not only the most fundamental points of the Christian faith that are contained in the symbols of the common faith, but also the whole doctrine revealed by Jesus Christ for a life of righteousness and salvation. They just wanted to hold to the doctrine revealed by Jesus Christ. Now in 1567, a few years uh, afterwards, and after spending many years on the run, Guido de Brez is arrested, and on May 31st of that year, he is hung. He is martyred because of his loyalty to Christ. But on his way to the gallows, on his way to be hung, he said this to his fellow prisoners. He said, my brothers, I am condemned to death today, 
for the doctrine of the Son of God. Praise be to Him. I would never have thought that God would give me such an honor. Right, someone who says, I was called to die today because I, I was convicted about the doctrine of the Son of God. That's why doctrine matters. And it matters especially when, when we face suffering and, and challenges and hardship. Because in those times when you could say that the wind is kind of blowing against the house and when the, the waters are rising and when the earth is shaking, especially during those times, we want to be convicted that the house were in his solid. And Guido de Bray was a guy who was convicted that his house was built on the solid, solid foundation that is Jesus Christ. Now some of you tonight might be saying, well, you know, we're dealing with a, a 16th century document. You know, it's written 500 years ago. It doesn't have that much relevance uh, today. I just want to remind you that there are Christians all over the world today who are still dying on account of doctrine. Christians all over the world who are still being persecuted because of doctrine. Over the Christmas break, I read, like many of you, the story of Pastor Wang Yi. Right, here's this man who was arrested almost a year earlier, charged with subverting the state. And on December 30th, he was tried in a secret court. He was sentenced to nine years. Nine years. I, want to, I just want you to let that sink in for a minute. Right? Think about being away from your family, away from your loved ones, your spouse, for nine years because of your loyalty to Christ. Here's what Pastor Wang Yi said. He said, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. And those are the words of a man who has built his house upon the rock. And Peter in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, he says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And I would say that's what we want to do over the next year. We, we want to walk through the truths of God's Word so that not only you are convicted about who God is, about who we are, about what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, about what he's called us to do, about where we're going. It's not only are you convicted on that, but you are able to share that conviction with others. And so we do pray and we ask for your prayers as well as we begin this series over the next year. Let's pray together.